I want to begin by taking you back to an incident that happened to, to me about five years ago. I have to imagine the scene, uh, which is in a, the house that we were living in in London. It's the middle of the day, and I'm, I'm the only person there. I'm walking past the table, and I notice a box of Maltesers, an open box of Maltesers. And now I should explain that these are not my Maltesers. They were given to my children as a present the night before. And I want you to, t- to take through you uh, the three stages of what happened next in slow motion. And stage one, various thoughts are popping into my head, uh, most of them untrue or only half true. I would really like one of those. In fact, I need one of those. I need a Malteser. Why not? My children's possessions are my possessions, aren't they? It's my house. Stage two, I persuaded myself to lose control. I reach out, I take one, and I eat it. And alongside the sugar rush, I feel a brief, fleeting feeling of power. A brief, fleeting feeling of being in charge. I'm free. I've broken the shackles constraining my happiness, if only for a moment. And in stage three, of course, I'm trying to cover up I shake the box slightly so as to make it look like nothing's gone missing. I make sure the box is exactly in the right place so it doesn't look like it's been moved. I'm telling myself that this is a small thing, that actually it's my children's fault for leaving it there. And this thing doesn't matter anyway, it's only a Malteser. And I'm trying to forget it and failing, as you can see. Now you'll know if you've been around in Christian circles for a while that what I've just described to you has a special technical term in Christian faith, it's called a sin. And I hope we're going to be reminded this morning that all sin has that same threefold pattern to it. Now, by God's grace, I know that the power of sin has been broken for me by Jesus and his death and resurrection. And that marvelously, I'm now in what you might call recovery from my addiction to sin. Nevertheless, my life is, sh- is scattered with such incidents. And I look around and see that I'm not alone in this. It's not just me. It's spread across my family. It's spread across my neighbourhoods. It's spread across our country. It's spread across the world. It's spread across history. Sometimes with devastating and awful effect. What is this thing? which colours every decision we make and infects every cell of the body of humanity like a cancer. Sin. What is it? Where did it come from? What can be done about it? Well, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13 seems to be uh, God's means for us to uncover the truth about sin right from the beginning. And we have the luxury of of two weeks to look at this passage. And what I propose we do is to save the, the second two of those questions... Uh, where did it come from and what can be done about it? Save the second two of those questions to focus on next week and that leaves us uh, with this time to answer the, the first and, and fundamental question. What is it? Because it does seem to, seem to be that one of the main purposes of this passage is to answer that particular question. And as God uncovers for us this morning the true pattern of all sin, I do hope that we'll see two main characteristics of what sin is like. 
First, that sin is all about lies and falsehood from start to finish. We're going to see that right across the three scenes of the story that we're going to be looking at this morning. And second, that at the centre, sin is doing something desperately foolish, desperately dangerous, mortally dangerous. That's what we're going to see in the central scene of the story here in Genesis 3. Now, as I've suggested, the story in Genesis chapter 3 does seem to unfold into into three scenes, and that's how we're going to break things up this morning. And you'll see the first scene there in uh, verses 1 to 5 is a a dialogue between a serpent and the woman who's in the garden. What's God doing through this scene? Well, let me try and persuade you. He's uncovering the lies that seduce us to sin. Now, it's going to be helpful for us to remember at this point the story so far in the book of Genesis, the The world has been created, and the world has been created in particular as a theatre of God's glory. And in the drama of history, this is going to be a growing glory as as life and spreading and blessing spread uh, throughout the whole world. The man and and a woman have been created to further that very purpose. They've been placed in the garden as God's image bearers and given a very specific task of taking life and blessing out into the whole earth. And we've been seeing God's generosity over the past weeks and giving them everything they need for that task, uh, including, notes, authority over all the animals. So then something very strange happens. Quite suddenly and unexpectedly, one of those animals speaks. You see it from verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, before we have a a look at what he said, let me first say that the, the moment it speaks, the moment it speaks, we know that something has gone wrong. And of course something's gone wrong. There's an animal speaking and that makes it verse one more crafty different than any other of the other animals the lord god had made more crafty more shrewd might even say more wise in some senses but it's very clear that this is not a wisdom that's appropriate to this animal to this creature it's a wisdom that inappropriately places it above its proper place as an animal. And we can see that in what it's now doing. It's actually questioning the humans who should be ruling over it, questioning them as if it was somehow their superior. So we may also say that the moment the woman answers the serpent and goes along with all this and, and, and answers defensively, that moment too we can say that something has gone wrong that she's been tricked into the serpent's scheme. I think she should have said something like this. She should have said, Ah! A talking snake! And she should have called over to the man. Uh, We're not told what the man's doing at this time or how far away he is. Perhaps he's planting some potatoes or potting up some begonias or something like that. Anyway, she should have called him over from whatever he was doing and said, Hey, look at this. What is it, my love? bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's a talking snake. A talking snake. What's it saying? Oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound quite right. That's not at all 
what the Lord God said to me. And they would have taken the serpent to the Lord and that would have been that. But tragically, the woman didn't do any of those things. She was, she was tricked. She was seduced. She was deceived into answering the serpent on its terms. And right at this point, even right at this point, we can see that something is going wrong. As we look at what she said, it's very much worth having in mind what the Lord said to the man back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Just, it's on the same page. Take a look at those again. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man... You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any of the tree. And we get the impression that there are many, many trees. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now it's worth remembering at this point that the woman wasn't there when the Lord God said that. Uh, she came later. She came afterwards. It was therefore the man's responsibility to pass uh, this, this on. But already we can see that something has gone wrong. We might call it the very first marital communication failure. And look again at what the woman said in reply to the serpent. This is chapter 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, uh, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tr- tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. Let us have both those Two things in mind, what the Lord God actually said, and then what the woman said he said. And see if you can spot the differences with me. How many are there, do you think? I think there are three at least. First, what the Lord God actually said was this, you may surely, freely eat from any of the trees, and we know from early on, any of the many trees which are good for food and pleasing to the eye. But the woman has dropped the any there. She's dropped this suggestion of broad, wonderful generosity. Second problem, she seems to have bought into the serpent's way of talking about the Lord. Uh, you can see that the serpent just refers to him as, as God. Uh, you can see that in verses 1 and 5. And she follows suit. She follows this pattern of talking of him just as God. In other words, she's dropped God's covenant name, the Lord, the precious name used by those who know him and love him and are deeply loved by him. He is just God. Third thing, she adds to what the Lord God said to the man. She makes the tree in the middle of the garden even more inaccessible to her. She says that that God said, you must not even touch it, uh, when in fact he said no such thing. Now what seems to have happened here is that the woman has swallowed the subtle but malicious suggestion in the serpent's question that somehow the Lord her God is unfairly holding something back from her. She's now got the feeling she's now got the feeling that the many trees that she can eat from are not enough. She's now got this idea in her mind that God is not a generous God. He's not the Lord her God. Uh, He is just God and he's holding something back and this thing that he's holding back, she can't even touch it. And these are the half-formed doubts about the law that the serpent now goes on to exploit and develop. You can see it there in verse 4. First of all, it flatly contradicts what the Lord said. The Lord said, if you remember, 
you do this thing, you will surely die. The serpent says, you will not surely die. The serpent is now planting a new lie, that God is a liar, that his warnings have no teeth, that he just wants to protect himself from potential rivals. And then comes the bait. He's lying to you, he's suggesting, because he wants to keep something from you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, as we'll see in a moment, so what the serpent offers here or suggests here is, in fact, half true. There is an element of truth in it. But I think we'd have to say that the Advertising Standards Authority would be not at all happy with what the serpent says in verse 5. Because, of course, the serpent is strongly suggesting that the woman and the man would then, if they did this thing, enjoy a new freedom and a new insight that has been denied them by a stingy and defensive God. The serpent is claiming that they could be like God. And in that, he's suggesting, at least, an equal status and glory. But those are our inflated claims, as we'll see in a moment. Those, those, those particular implied claims are not true at all. But the servant is confident that it's said enough at this point, and it quietly slips away. I think we might say that the way that the servant is behaving here is something like a seasoned con artist. Con artists work hard to, uh, to persuade us that they're on our side, they can give us something that we want. And very often they're very skillful in, in, in playing on our greed. And when we find out that we've been deceived, that we've been stung, it should really hurt, shouldn't it? I can remember um, quite vividly a moment in Paris. This was back when I was uh, age 19, backpacking around Europe. A man offered to help me buy a metro ticket and he cheated me out of 10 francs. I was very grateful for, for him helping at the time. But when I realised that I'd been cheated out of this money, my gullibility haunted me for days. It's still haunting me. But that's how it should be, shouldn't it? When we've been cheated. And how much more, in fact, when we've been cheated out of something so precious, even life itself. This should hurt in other ways, too. This is what the serpent doing here is, is rather like the, the kind of malicious gossip the unfounded slander which undermines or destroys friendships. We'll have all come across this in different ways, I suspect. And it is terrible when that happens, isn't it? And after it, and after the, the relationship has been broken and we've been taken in by the lies, we should indeed deeply regret that we were taken in by them and deeply regret that a relationship was damaged unnecessarily. So then as we reflect on this, and the, as we reflect on the way that we're, we're being duped. It's right to feel stupid. It's right to feel hurt by this. It's right to feel the deep regret of a, a relationship that, that's broken by, by slander. And it's right, of course, to learn to recognise the serpent's voice today. Because, of course, the same half-truths and the same lies are still being spoken. They're all around us, all the time, in fact. I wonder if you're, you're hearing them even now as I speak. Take that preacher preaching on sin. How old-fashioned. It's 
like a caricature from the American South. Look at him all dressed up in his suit trying to look respectable. It's pathetic. He's not on your side. He's not on your side. He's just like many of his kind, driven by the intense fear that someone somewhere might be having fun. I'd like to say to you, be very suspicious. Be very suspicious of that claim that sin is just having a bit of fun. Investigate that claim. Is it, is it true? Is it really true? And be very suspicious of slander against God that's offered without any real evidence. We found this, find this all the time. We even find it in children's books, like those of Philip Pullman. The idea that God is just out to oppress us, just out to suppress our freedom. Be very suspicious, too, of flattery and exaggeration. Those voices that are around us in advertising and in other ways, you deserve it. You're worth it. You need it. You really, really, really need it. You really, really, really need an iPad. Voices at us all the time. Most of all, though, be suspicious of those quick to contradict God, quick to reverse what is said. Voices that say, you will not surely die. How primitive. What superstition. God just wants you to go with what feels right. Isn't that right? Go on, give it a try. What harm can it do? What harm can it do? Well, that's exactly what God is going to uncover for us next. In the very next scene, in fact. Scene two. Uncovering the dangerous stupidity of sin. As we look at what happened here, it will be helpful again to remember the purpose of the man and the woman in God's creation. Remember again that the world has been created as a theatre of God's glory and that the man and the woman have been placed, created and placed there to further that purpose. They've been placed in the garden as his image bearers and given the task of taking life and blessing to the whole world. Well, watch that purpose being derailed in an instant. A single tragic moment told in a single tragic verse. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now clearly at this point the man and the woman have not talked about the conversation with the serpent. So the woman has missed her chance to clear up the the faulty understanding of what the Lord God had said originally. That's marital communication failure number two. And she's now persuaded herself that uh, this tree is just like all the other trees. It has fruit that's good for food and and pleasing to the eye, like, like the Lord God said about the other trees. And she's... You know, she's allowed to eat from all of those. Why not this one? Just seems churlish to deny her this one. And prompted by the serpent, she's persuaded herself that the wisdom that it offers is desirable. It will be good for her. Uh, She wants it. Perhaps she's feeling that now she deserves it. Uh, It's her right. So she takes it. It is, if you like, her full solution to a false and invented problem 
that's been invented and set up for her by the serpent. And it's at this point that the man misses his chance to finally set things straight. I guess that's marital communication failure number three. He should have stepped in at this point, shouldn't he? Either that was just being irresponsibly, hopelessly dopey at this point. Uh, The first in a long line of many dopey husbands. What's that, love? What are you giving me for dinner this time? Proof of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, you know, I was hoping for an apple, but hey-ho. But to understand the seriousness of what's going on here, we do need to remember what this fruit represents. This, this, this is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, it's not some kind of magic tree or magic fruit. Neither is the wisdom the fruit represents the kind, the kind of wisdom that might be suitable for the man or the woman, as the ser- serpent has tried to suggest to them. We need to remember that they, they have already been given the wisdom that they need to do the task they've been given to do. God has been remarkably and profoundly generous in that. Now, as we were hearing uh, just a few weeks ago, as Paul was teaching on this, the knowledge of good and evil is, is a wisdom that is particular. It's a wisdom that's appropriate and suitable for the creator alone. It's the wisdom of the lawmaker, the wisdom of the one who made the world and sets the rules within it. So what the man and woman are doing uh, when they eat the fruit is far more than merely breaking a rule. It is that. It is that. And that's bad enough because that in itself shows a rebellious attitude towards the Lord their God. But this is more than rebelling against a rule. It's a rebellion against a person. It's a rebellion against the position of God himself. It is, if you like, an attempted coup on creation. It is, as some people have said, an attempted deicide. It's trying to get rid of God, to kill him, get him out of the way, so that they can move in and decide how things should work in this creation for themselves, as if it was theirs and not his. And through this verse, we're watching the CCTV footage of that terrible moment. And as we realise what they're doing at this point, we should be screaming, no! Desperately frustrated that they can't hear us or respond to us. Because the third part is looking on at this. We we can see the simple, stupid absurdity of this. The absurdity of creatures trying to push aside the one who created them. It's like Sherlock Holmes trying to murder Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's an absurdity. What's more, we can see the frightful danger of it. I guess it's a bit like a child watching his father at the wheel of the car on the motorway thinking, that looks fun. I could do that. Why shouldn't I do that? Why is he denying me this fun? And the child reaches over and grabs the wheel and puts the whole car and himself in great danger. And what's more, and this is the thing that really struck me this last week, once we understand what's going on here, we can see how the man and the woman have done something very, very serious because they have made themselves redundant in God's world. They are no longer fit for the purpose that they were created for. They were, if you remember, created as God's image bearers to spread life and blessing in this world. But they have swallowed the lie that God is not the God he said he was. And in their defiant action, that is the lie they are now spreading. 
In other words, you might say that they've turned from image bearers, taking the glory of God into the world, they've turned from that to being lie bearers. And we wonder why he allows them to exist in his world for a moment. It's this extraordinary thing. Why, was he, why does he allow them to exist when they've failed in their purpose so comprehensively? And then we might well wonder why he allows us to exist too. And the effect of what they've done is instant. Take a look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked. So they made coverings from themselves. And then in verse 8, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, as the serpent promised, they do now see and know something that they didn't see and know before. And there's a play on the words here in the original, which uh, strangely also works in, in English. It goes like this, and seeking to be shrewd, they found that they were nude. What they see and now know is something rather less than perhaps they were hoping. They see and know their nakedness, having taken the fruit. And what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, take a look back at chapter 2, verse 25 where you can see that before all this happened, the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. After the event, that's no longer true. But what does it mean for them to feel shame in this context? Well, I think it must mean, in this context anyway, that now they feel vulnerable towards each other, perhaps even sexually vulnerable towards each other. They can't trust each other anymore. They can't even trust themselves. And that fits with what they've just done. We can see why that's the new situation. You see, what they've done is set themselves up as gods. They've now become, therefore, rivals to one another and rivals to God himself. Now they're going to live in fear of one another, fear of what the other one might do in the new rivalry between them. And most of all, in fear of what God might do. These are the first hints of the destructive power of sin, which we'll come back to next week. And the man and the woman can already feel it. They can already feel that vulnerability and danger. So they protect themselves with hastily made clothing. And they hide among the trees. But of course, there is nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to hide from the God who made the world. And what we'll discover next is that just as much as they can't hide behind the trees, they certainly can't hide behind mere words. And that takes us to our final scene this morning. Uncovering the lies we hide behind. And I think it works well to think of this final scene as something like a courtroom scene. The crime has happened and now the trial has begun. Humanity on trial. And first to be called before the judge of the world is the man. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man. Now why is the man called first? That's slightly surprising, isn't it? Well, in the end, all this is his responsibility. And the scriptures are very clear about that as we go through them. This is Adam's responsibility. Remember that he was the the one given the task of spreading life and blessing. He was the one placed 
in the garden to work it. He was the one who was warned explicitly about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was his responsibility to bring the woman up to speed and on board with everything that was going on. Just as an aside, you might like to ponder that for a moment if you're or a husband or a father here this morning, as I ponder it, that we will be held responsible for everything that goes wrong within our households. That is something we're going to have to face up to. Anyway, going back to the scene, it doesn't take long for the man under cross-examination to admit what happened. He immediately blames the woman. He even goes so far as to imply a blame against the Lord his God. Look at verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. Look, I think maybe this is your fault when we look into it, the man is saying. But the man's responsibility here doesn't let the woman off either. What have you done, says the Lord to her. What have you done? She then blames the serpent. Now, it doesn't take much thought to, to see what's going on here. We're sitting in the, in the public gallery, if you like, at this courtroom scene, listening to the evidence. And as we listen to it, it's, it's very easy to see the thinness of the excuses you know, as third parties to all this. And the blame and counter-blame that's going on within the court are already testimony to the destructive and divisive power of sin. These things are relatively easy, aren't they, to to see in other people, uh, rather harder to see in ourselves. Most of us will have noticed, for example, how difficult shamed celebrities find it to apologise publicly. It is never simply sorry, is it? It's always sorry, but... and then a whole string of excuses... And we can think about other areas too. It's it's very easy, at least when we stop to think about it, to see the dangerous stupidity built around the idea that's very, very common, that every psychological problem we ever have is the fault of our parents. And to see the damage that does, how families are broken and nothing gets solved by that. And of course, there are no end of things people blame for their behaviour. Their genes, their poverty, perhaps even their privilege, their neighbours, They're bad luck. But of course, uh, when I'm honest about it, I am doing this all the time too. I was tired. I forgot. I was having a bad day. You know, I've been incredibly busy. The excuses are, in the end, more skimpy than the man and woman's new clothing. So there we have it. The pattern of all sin. The stupidity of falling for a lie, for a con, a fraudulent offer. The awful slow motion disaster of the act itself. And then the awkward, embarrassing, shameful, broken aftermath. And I hope you found, as I have found this last week, the Genesis 3, very helpful in understanding what sin is all about, what it really is. And what's more, when we see it for what it is, we do, I think, want to stop it. Each of these three scenes we've looked at should help us to see sin as less attractive. Think about the first scene. Why would anyone want to be taken in by a lie? By a con? 
Or think about the central scene. Why would anyone want to do anything so absurd, so ridiculous, so dangerous, so harmful for others and indeed ourselves? Or think about the final scene. Do we really want to be like that? Just spending our time childishly blaming someone else? Hiding behind half-truths? When in the end it's just embarrassing. So potentially at least seeing the reality of our sin should help us to stop doing it. And yet. And yet we can't help it, it would seem. The truth is, and we have to face up to this, we're addicted. We are hopelessly addicted to this thing. The seduction is too strong for us. And we are too weak. It's desperate. Recognition, recognition may be the first step in recovering from our addiction to sin, but it's clearly not enough. It doesn't have the power to break it. And as we realise that it's not enough, it may, may indeed want to make us want to cry out, along with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But the answer, of course, is the same one as the one he gave. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I wonder if you noticed uh, from the reading from Matthew chapter 4 how Jesus changed all this. How Jesus comprehensively broke the pattern that we've been looking at this morning. He broke the pattern of sin. When Satan was trying to deceive him, he wasn't taken in for a moment. Not once did he ever think that his father was holding something back from him or, or would never care for him. Care for him. Not once was he div- diverted from the purpose that he's been given. Not once was he seduced by what he was offered, even when he was offered all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, at that moment, and it was a very precious moment, for the first time in the history of human sin, the pattern was broken. And if the pattern was broken, then there is hope. Just how we can grasp hold of that hope, we haven't looked at yet. But that's what we're going to come back and look at next week. But for the moment, let's pray together.